The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Has the mental health of Christians been damaged by the frightening combination of Covid and progressive ideology? That's one of the topics I raised in a discussion I've had, rather disturbing discussion in some ways, with the wonderful Dr Gavin Ashenden. He feels, as I do, that Christians are perhaps suffering from specific psychological problems created by the bottomless contempt of secular society for their beliefs and also unforgivable pastoral failures by their own leaders. But they can't blame all these problems on other people because look at the way Christians are eviscerating each other on social media. And I'm well aware that I'm not helping. But is there a way out of this existential misery? Gavin thinks there is. Here's our conversation. Gavin, I wanted to talk about the miserable subject of despair and fear, let's throw in anxiety, anger, among Christians, particularly over the last couple of years since the Covid crisis started, because I've been surprised and dismayed, but in a strange way perhaps also comforted, because I feel it as well, by the number of Christians who said really, really bleak things to me recently. For example, a Catholic friend of mine said, quite casually in conversation, do you ever feel you just wouldn't mind if you didn't wake up tomorrow morning? And my response to that would be, absolutely, that's exactly how I feel, but then I had to correct it, because of course I've got a sister, and that wouldn't be very helpful for her at the moment, but nonetheless, it's something I think all the time. And as I read news about the Christian world, and as I read about the Christian world's interaction with the secular world, I'm struck by how very, very bad the news is, to put it bluntly. I'm struck by huge public intolerance of Christianity from the secular state and all its progressive allies, very powerful allies. I'm also struck by the Stockholm Syndrome of bishops in both the Anglican and the Catholic churches, who, as we all recall so vividly from the first lockdown, seemed more eager than anybody else, including the government, to shut down public worship. And I'm conscious of the collapse of a whole sort of infrastructure, a whole system of habits and pious practices that really, I think, will struggle to recover after this. Now, we've touched on this before in our conversations, but... I am interested in the effect this is having on mental health. Now, until a few years ago, I'm sorry to say I kind of sneered at the phrase mental health because I associated it with, at the time, you know, Channel 4 comedians quotes bravely, celebrities always bravely talking about their mental health problems. And it always seemed a bit self-indulgent. And I was never quite sure what they meant by mental health. But now I'm much more receptive to it because I think I've got pretty bad mental health problems myself. Although maybe I shouldn't say it, or maybe I'm being brave by saying it, but actually maybe millions and millions and millions of people have. Because I think the last couple of years have been so very disorientating for everybody in society. Disorientating in a special way, however, for Christians who see their beliefs 
mocked and circumscribed, who feel betrayed by their own leaders, and who are having to work very hard to sustain their belief at a time when it's never entirely clear that church services or pastoral care will be available. Have you picked up some of the same disturbance yourself, Gavin? Yes, and, and like you, I'm, I'm very aware of, of, of my own mental fragility. And uh, I've been surprised at the extent to which COVID has really exacerbated things. And at, at so many levels, there was a, a lady I was standing behind as I queued to pay for a parking ticket the other day. And um, we were wearing masks and there was two metres between us. And she turned round and with eyes of fury said, you're creeping up on me, which was ludicrous because we were both standing stock still. The way in which our neighbours have been turned not into just someone who's a challenge to love and to forgive and to put up with, but actually as an enemy who might, who might kill us, has been an extraordinary element of this last year. And of course, we've been beset by fear. Um, fear, not only our natural fears, but I, I think... Um, a campaign of fear that's been part of the way in which we've been encouraged by nudge to behave in the face of this this illness. I'm a little bit sceptical of the idea of politically inspired fear because I think that there's a lot of nutters out there who want to present every attempt to control the spread of the virus as some sort of conspiracy and it doesn't strike me that members of the government feel any particular pleasure in having to sort of clamp down on public life. But on the other hand, I can see that the urge to micromanage people's lives seems to be absolutely integral to the progressive project. And this Tory government is only slightly better than other governments at resisting the demands of the progressive project. And if those demands are apparently plausible medical requirements, then it's not good at all at resisting them because actually resisting them might be dangerous. Well, of course, I mean, that, that's the dilemma that everyone has. But I think fear has been something that seems to have lurked at the bottom of the Pandora's box. After all, we, we've had indications that, that sage advisors wondered if they could, how much they could, quote, get away with in terms of lockdown. And that's a perfectly reasonable question. But But obviously the government had to decide to find ways of controlling society, both by motivating us and by passing laws. The problem is, I think, they reached for an element of fear uh, in terms of, of trying to make us properly concerned about, about mortality and death rates. But they unleashed something that they didn't really know how to control. So the way in which the media have been, have been failing to distinguish between death with COVID and death from COVID, for example, the way in which the news every night has been telling us how many people have died. Um, even if you grasp the figures and you have a good sense of the maths, the relentless information campaign about what COVID is doing is enough to upset everybody and drive some people over the edge. Now, this is not the government's fault, and it, it, it's not about conspiracy theories. It's simply, it's not very good for you to have um, the media talk to you every single day, several times a day, about death. And religious believers, especially Christians, can't necessarily draw on their faith as something with which to counterbalance that, can they? Because their own pastors are busy spreading the same apocalyptic message, with huge relish and considerably less scientific understanding. 
Well, in terms of mental health <laughs> and learning how to handle anger being an important element of mental health, one of the things that's made me most angry and I've handled badly is exactly the, the issue of death because um, death is profoundly difficult and one of the points of being a Christian is that we have narrative experience, culture, liturgy, community, ways of, of confronting this awfully, awfully terrible thing. And so when society is being terrified by death to the point almost of a, of a social psychosis, the one thing Christians could bring to the table is to say, death is a universal existential problem for us all. Let's talk about it because we think we have ways of dealing with it. And anyway, it's always good to talk about things like this. To be then faced with a complete silence by our public voices seems to me to be one of the worst derelictions of duty and to suggest that Christianity has nothing to offer to a secular society when in fact the opposite is true and should have been true. Matters are not helped by the overt politicisation of the clergy and this is something that's true on both sides of the Atlantic and is causing terrific problems for example in the American Catholic Church as I was discussing in the last episode of Holy Smoke where certain powerful bishops such as the, the, the Cardinal's Bishop of Chicago, Washington, are so desperate to ingratiate themselves with Joe Biden that they will basically tear up Catholic teaching on abortion in order to accommodate him. There was a piece in the Daily Mail, very good piece, by Dominic Lawson, who's one of the best writers about religion, I think, even though he's an atheist, telling us about the gruesome Anglican Bishop of St. David's, Dr. Joanna Penberthy, who hates Tories so much that she says that she was uh, ashamed of each and every person who voted Tory at the election, tweets out, never, never, never trust a Tory. When you've got bishops like that, and she's just an extreme example of the sort of mentality that we find, for example, coming from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, it's no wonder that they're not able to slip easily into inspiring talk about the afterlife, a subject that preoccupied Jesus enormously. And to say that it looms large in the Gospels is putting it very mildly, but it doesn't loom large in the public pronouncements of awful time-serving lefty bureaucrats such as the Bishop of St David's. Well, we've talked about metaphysics and the supernatural as being one of the dividing lines between different ways of doing the faith but you would have thought if ever there was an opportunity to face some of these issues in in a language that was accessible to everybody the fact of death the possibility of life after death the way in which one might at least begin to make a journey of exploration this is the bread and butter of religion spirituality and it it's so far from dividing people into two to polarities between supernaturalists and naturalists, for example. We're all in exactly the same boat. And I think one of the worst things that's happened for me is that friends of mine have died in the last 18 months and I've not been able to get to their funerals. That too has caused a lot of pain and a lot of anger. And again, I think contributed to our mental dis-ease and, and unease. But there hasn't been any opportunity to talk about it, partly because we've not been able to meet people uh, and, and we've all been restricted to Zoom, but also because there's this sense that it can that death, even in the in the Christian community, at the hands of of um, the most vocal, appears to be a taboo. Well, that's exactly what it should not be. Death, the the resurrection of Christ, our hope, our faith, our longing for life after death is 
it's, it's the sort of room 101 of why you might want to be a believer. It's interesting you talk about the death of friends. Last year, and I'll never forget the date because it was, it was on my birthday, my dear friend Dr Stephen O'Leary, formerly of the University of Southern California, died on January the 24th. He was like a brother to me. Uh, he was an intellectual mentor, he was a fellow mischief maker. Our politics were rather different, but that didn't matter in the slightest. I mean, occasionally we'd row about it. We had a lot of fun. He was the cleverest man I've ever met. And also when he wasn't uh, fighting various problems with addiction that, that he, he, he and his, his family have been quite open about since he died. Really one of the very nicest people I've met in my life. But um, he died in California and I wouldn't have been able to go to his funeral anyway. And I think it's, it's doubtful that I would have flown all the way out there just for his funeral. I wanted to fly out there to see him, but not in a coffin. I was, however, able to pay tribute to Stephen on social media and to reproduce a wonderful, life-affirming, encouraging message of hope that he sent me a few days before he died. And I know that that was a comfort to his family. So social media, in this instance, actually helped me cope with something that causes me, still causes me pain every day, which is losing my friend Stephen. But on the other hand, social media, I think, has enormously contributed to not just the anxiety that everybody feels, but the specific psychological tensions that are afflicting the Christian community. They are an outlet for anger, for the spread of rumours, many of them true. They allow people to express themselves publicly while continuing with the private process of rumination, that sort of obsessive concentration on an unhelpful topic, which therapists say is so damaging to mental health, and I know they're absolutely right because I'm a, you know, I really should be given a Nobel Prize for rumination for angry contemplation of things to the point where basically I'm driving myself mad. And social media doesn't help, particularly Twitter. It doesn't at all, does it? I, I, I think one of the things that made me most angry in the last few months was watching a funeral on television where, where employees of the Krem pulled away mourners who'd come up to put an arm round the widow. And so, I mean, leaving aside everything one knows about the average age of mortality from COVID being actually higher than the national average age of, of normal death, the prospect of people catching the disease inside a crematorium with social spacing already was so small. And yet the attack on the humanity of a grieving widow, so grievous, that it may be extremely cross. And of course, what do we what do we do, all of us, with our anger? Most of us turn to social media, Facebook or Twitter. I, I haven't yet managed to master Instagram and I don't want to and TikTok I, I don't want learning about. But I'm aware that much I've channeled an enormous amount of rage, albeit I've tried to tone it down, to turn it into pathos, irony, humour, and my worst sarcasm, which I, I hate sarcasm, but I sometimes fall for it. But but absolutely. The things that have made us all angry have had to find their outlet in social media. And one of the things I've discovered, of course, which I should have known, is that none of us are immune from the narcissistic underminings of our mental health that social media 
aggravates for everybody. It's a, it's a lovely way of keeping in touch, but my goodness, if you define narcissism as having grandiosity, uh, vulnerability and entitlement, all our sense of innate superiority, our longing to be as good as other people and our entitled feelings get summed up in social media. And I, I think we've all become more narcissistic, not less, through its usage. I certainly have. I remember attending, this is before narcissism became a very fashionable concept that it is today, about 15 years ago, I remember attending with a friend a symposium at the LSE in which narcissistic personality disorder was being discussed. And at the end of it, he turned to me and he said, that's you they're describing, isn't it? Certainly, I'm conscious of the way that Twitter magnifies and distorts my personality and also opens up opportunities for me to express myself frankly to people to whom I wouldn't normally have the chance to talk. But the displays of anger, particularly, I mean, I've been focusing a lot on the American Catholic community recently. The displays of anger are actually breathtaking. It seems to me that entire intellectual movements have been formed by angry impulses. For example, I'm always banging on about these very, very strange people called integralists, conservative American Catholics who, who've got plans to construct a sort of Catholic utopia, a Catholic totalitarian utopia, which they disguise by referring to it as common good constitutionalism. But it's very odd. It's slightly sinister. It's basically barking mad. And I think the reason that it's not discussed more openly is that some of the integralists are so short-tempered, particularly on social media. They're opposed by some very, very influential people, but those people just don't want to go into a fight with them in public. But to me, that's a manifestation of a broader sort of unhappiness in the Catholic or the Christian community. This fragmentation, which perhaps was inevitable because of changes in society, has been accelerated, been accelerated by social media. We know that by technology. Also the experience of COVID and also this Stockholm syndrome, this pathetic identification with the international progressive lobby by church leaders, including the Pope. I found it very difficult to distinguish my anger from people I'm very angry with, which, which is the whole progressive movement. So if for a moment we say, well, you know, culturalism, Marxism 1.0 was, was about proclaiming people mad if they believed in God and locking them up in the gulags, and 2.0 is about proclaiming people bad and not forgiving them and cancelling them in our present culture, then it would be very nice to be able to say, well, I don't get angry with bad people. But but in fact, I've got immensely angry. I mean, even in the last few days, listening to the discussions about Ollie Robinson, a, a, a cricketer, being dropped from national cricket team because eight years ago he said some actually quite impenetrable things. I could, I, it wasn't. I didn't even find them funny or not funny. I didn't understand them. But but the idea that there is no forgiveness for a person like that, not only no forgiveness, but he should be punished for something he said when he was younger, and then dropped from the thing he's earning his living at. I've I've got so cross with it, and so it's very difficult to distinguish oneself from being cross in a way that I feel is entirely legitimate from people who are also very cross in ways I feel that are illegitimate. And 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 one of the ways one might deal with that is to talk to people about it, but we've not been able to talk to each other occasionally. You know, podcasts have been the closest we one we've got to it with a bit of Zoom, but this inability to work our way through complex 
uh, anxieties, angers and fears through talking. You know, Freud was right. The talking cure's got something to it, but you don't always need a psychotherapist. You just need some friends. We haven't had access to our friends. Well, of course, Christians from different traditions don't and won't talk to each other. That's perfectly clear. I mean, the ghastly Bishop of St. David's clearly doesn't like to talk to Tories or even acknowledge their existence, except to sort of spit at them rhetorically. But generally speaking, there's almost no dialogue between different factions in different religious traditions. I notice it in Catholicism. I bet it's just as true in Anglicanism. I bet it's true in Judaism. I'm sure it's true in Islam. But the filter bubble that Eli Palliser talked about in his brilliant book, which enables us to make sure that we only hear opinions and meet people with whom we agree. And for example, there's some mad professor in America who, although he's quite distinguished, blocks absolutely everybody who says anything that might conceivably challenge his worldview. That, I think, just has the effect of reinforcing our unhappiness and anxiety. I'm sure that's true. And, and I'm, I know that I'm completely improperly comfortable with the filter bubble. I, I take some delight in the fact that I can construct a like-minded community around myself from, uh, in which I, I don't hear views from people I don't respect and dislike. And I'm really ashamed about this. And, but, but in fact, it's almost come to the point where one can't help it partly because other people also exercise their filter bubbles and they, they don't want me inside their bubble any more than I want them. But because we have so many interactions on, on social media, we're all finding ourselves increasingly ghettoized. And the fact that I enjoy it is, is, it is not at all a self-compliment. It's something I ought to be ashamed of. But because of the way in which uh, social media and technology work, so few of our personal encounters happen face to face. The only place I get to meet human beings nowadays is walking my dog. And when I meet when I meet other dog walkers, we stop and say hello to each other. And where church ought to have been the place of incarnated encounter, it's now dog walking. And again, I think you know, that's something else that makes me angry. How on earth is it that the churches have managed to close their doors, disallow people to meet disallow us even to sing even though in France they've been singing for the last nine months so that one's reduced to dog walking which I'm grateful for but it you know it shouldn't be that that's all there is and that we find ourselves ghettoized by filter bubbles. And the solitary thing can become a very bad habit and I'm talking about myself here I, I just popped out to the shops earlier it was the first time I'd left the flat in two weeks I hadn't actually wanted to leave the flat because it's a wretched thing called Deliveroo which is bankrupting me very quickly means that I don't have to. I just haven't been in the mood to. At the same time, I've been utterly engrossed in social media or various websites, suffocated by my own solipsism. I know it's not good for me, but on the other hand, it's less daunting than actually having to go out to meet people, which is something I've just lost my enthusiasm for. I was struck the other day, I was reading about depression, and I noticed that one of the symptoms of depression, according to this or that expert, was that you cease to take pleasure in things that used to give you enormous pleasure. One thing that's happened to me is that I've been forcing myself to listen to music. Now, that's never happened to me before in my life. But it's almost felt like too much of an effort to listen to a piece of music. And 
that induces terrible feelings of guilt, actually, because one of the things I could always rely upon was my love of music and my obsessive desire to hear every interpretation of every piece. And recently I've struggled with maintaining that. It's a little bit like this business of not wanting to wake up in the morning. But these problems, I think, are now so widespread that although I'm a bit madder than most people, it doesn't make me an absolute freak. Others may disagree. I think that's enough despair from us for the moment, Gavin, because I, if I think it's no surprise to listeners to this programme that we are good friends and that you're somebody who's a bit of a mentor to me. And I was telling you about these problems the other day and you started talking about the resources that Christianity has to offer to cope with the worst thing that afflicts me, which is this rumination, this endless rehearsal of grievance, this endless outburst of anger. Sometimes I can, it often happens when I'm taking a shower in the morning, I can spend 20 minutes rehearsing a particular grievance, wishing terrible things to happen to people I can't stand, who may be people I've never even met. And you said, well, hang on, there are ways of dealing with this which come from within the Christian tradition. Yes, I think one of the clues that, that, that encouraged me to think in this direction was when I was lecturing in the psychology of religion, uh, research papers that begun to do something quite unusual, hadn't been done before, which was to, to look at the mental health uh, and the, other, the health otherwise of, of people who believed and comparing it to people who didn't believe. And because there was still this great Freudian myth that somehow religious belief was a sign of mental dis-ease, to discover that actually the, the, the truth on the ground was that religion or religious belief and practice was actually good for you, somatically and psychosomatically was a great surprise but then as one thinks about it it shouldn't be such a surprise for example uh, cognitive behavioral therapy has become far more widespread and quite rightly hugely appreciated but actually it borrows from stuff that we've been doing as believers for a very long time um, one of the things that we all have to try to do which happens the moment you start to pray, is to deal with a, a rationality that won't lie down, won't be quiet, won't stop interrupting us, won't stop saying things. So there's voices, there's jumpy voices in our head, which are immensely difficult, almost impossible for most people to control until you start to pray. And then when you, when you start to pray, you realise that the church has been doing this for a very long time. And hesychastic, which is, which is repetitive prayer, designed to quieten the consciousness and allow something to be integrated inside us once those wretched, jumpy voices have the volume turned down and they go to sleep because they're bored. So whether it's a Jesus prayer or, or the rosary or the liturgy or even just reciting the Psalms, um, there is within this great treasury of belief and spirituality some wonderful ways of, of helping us with, with our mental health. I think, I guess, it's the opposite of psychosomatic, isn't it? It's, it's soma, somatopsycho. What we do with our bodies uh, can begin to have a profound effect on our minds. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly, for example, the way in which orthodox believers prostrate themselves. For, for, for a long time, you'd look at this and say, what on earth is this person doing these repetitive movements for? And then, then one begins to discover that what one does with one's body has an effect on one's mind and one's attitude and the way in which the mind works. So again, it, it seems to me that the COVID crisis could have been an opportunity for Christianity to compete with, with third-rate yoga practitioners and other people who make a gesture towards this kind of thing and say, 
we have some really very wonderful ways of staying sane and deepening our humanity. And just at the moment, anything that helps with sanity ought to be taken seriously and listened to and practised. And I'm struck by the way that that reinforces one of the insights of cognitive behavioural therapy, which is that motivation often follows action. In other words, you start doing something and then you get motivated to do it rather than the other way around. I once had a very, very distinguished psychiatrist, therapist, a legendary figure and a lovely man. And I presented him with a particular problem of motivation. And he leant back in his chair and he said, Damien, J-F-D-I. I said, what does that mean, this very eminent figure? And he said, just fucking do it. And in a sense, I think that works for religious belief as well, perhaps. In other words, once you begin a practice of repetitive devotions, then belief may follow, though I'm not convinced, but nonetheless, perhaps I should try it. Well, I think it's self-evident, really. that The problem with not practising is that one then starts trying to believe in a vacuum. And, and belief is not something cerebral. It's not a theory. Whatever belief is, it has to catch up the whole of us, consciousness, unconsciousness, and be embodied. Uh, I think it was Lewis who said we, we are embodied souls. And so the, the soul needs to inform the body rather, and, and the body can inform the soul. But, but you're, you're right. If we say our prayers, if we repeat the Psalms, if we verbalise the good news in any form at all, even if it's Kyrie eleison, help, we then set up a, a creative healing narrative which confronts whatever's coming at us. And the trouble is the stuff that comes at us is so... I, I mustn't use the word toxic, that's another word being far overused, but, but so much of the stuff that comes at us, whether it's constant stimulation from the media or, or constant noise or constant bad news or constant interruption, there has to be some internal countering of it. And, and prayer, the Psalms, reading stuff that's good for you, including the scriptures, the liturgy, all these things are ways of acting out something that's redemptive to give us a balance. Now, after we've acted them out, we can then begin to make some choices and say, which which of these things makes me work better? And the answer is almost always the things of faith make us work better, which is why the studies say that people who believe and people who live out their faith on the whole are, are better, not morally better only, but, but better off physically and psychologically than those who don't. This is one respect in which social media has helped a little bit, I think. I know that you have quite a considerable YouTube following. I know that my great friend, Father Benedict Keeley, puts out small spiritual messages that, for example, my sister finds incredibly inspiring. But the infrastructure is in a bad state of repair because there really need to be public liturgies as well as these private devotions as well. And the provision of the public liturgies, well, God knows what's going to happen now. Arthur Roach has been made head of the Congregation for Divine Worship in Rome, something else that made me extremely angry since I can't stand him. But, you know, with, without the provision of proper non-politicised liturgies, preferably not presided over by Dr. Joanna Penworthy, whatever she's called, um, this is something that needs to happen and needs to be done properly, and needs to resume. Unless we can be sure of that, then I worry that Christians will continue 
to feel disproportionate fear and anxiety. But you know, Damien, this is one of those moments when um, I have to say something really very wonderful has come out of COVID. The deprivation, the enforced fasting this last year of liturgy, of open churches, of access to believing communities has been so horrible that never again will I hesitate when someone says, oh, why should I go to church? Why bother with church? What are churches for? The experience of having the doors locked uh, and even even the mass covidized with clergy with gloves on <laughs> i could get very angry um, but but you know it's a wonderful discovery we ought to be we ought to have recovered an enormous amount of confidence and self-belief and joy in the prospect of being able to go to the liturgy go to church to meet people to talk to people to grab it with both hands and again once once again i hope those with public voices within the christian community will stand up and say look what we underestimated look what we let go let us embrace it with an enormous amount of enthusiasm and begin to roll back all that has been decadent and dismal and, and fearful and frightful in the last 18 months because we're much more easily able to distinguish that which is good for us from that which is bad for us. Well, I couldn't agree more, but it boils down to something that we've said many times before. I can't remember how many times I've concluded Holy Smoke episodes with this thought. Christianity needs new leaders. Well, (laughs) I have to say, I'm a great fan of Holy Smoke, particularly when I'm not on it. A series of voices have come to the surface, haven't they? We've been hearing from authentic voices that have given hope, inspiration, insight, intelligence, faith. So the the fact is, I mean, if I can strike a, a, a religious and spiritual note for a moment... God has not left us without help. It's just that um, as the normal channels failed us, unusual channels have opened up. Perhaps we can encourage normal channels to resume their responsibilities and then we'll have both normal and abnormal and be the better for it. Gavin Ashton, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.